Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bino Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to the history of being black. As always, I am Eunice Elliott, and I always like to mention I'm still black from last episode because things change in this world, but I am historically still a black woman. And on this show, I'm always excited to be joined by some of the brightest minds in the country. And today is no exception. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ashley Howard. Dr. Howard, in reading your bio, uh, something that stood out to me as far as your what your interest area is. So when we have... Um, professors on our show, obviously you are researched and studied in certain areas, but urban rebellion really stood out to me. So when urban rebellion is said in your bio, what does that mean? I can tell you it evokes for me a lot of different images, but I'm curious, urban rebellion, what does that mean? What urban rebellion is, as much as a thing of what it's not. It's not a riot. It's not senseless violence. It's not people just cutting up to be acting out. It's a political action. Um, And historically, this has been a way of people at the bottom of our society to let the power structure know that they're dissatisfied. They want something more from their lives after years and years of trying to petition the so-called right way. So an urban rebellion is an uprising of people in opposition to the, the lousy conditions of their life. And it often manifests in window breaking and stealing of goods or fires. Um, but these are political actions, not just violence for the sake of violence. Okay, so obviously there's such a distinction. Talk to me about this being your wheelhouse and your, your point of study and expertise when you see current day protests happening. And then depending on what you're watching or what you're consuming, it's these thugs, it's this rioting, it's this looting. Tell me about your perspective on how that is consumed as far as modern day urban rebellions. Well, first of all, this is such an interesting thing for me to talk about because how I came to this topic and where we are now are two very different things. When I Mm -hmm. began this research project 15 years ago, Everybody kind of thought that the era of unrest, of uprisings, the so-called long, hot summers were over, even though there were ones that happened, say, 1992 in Los Angeles and some smaller events in Milwaukee and Chicago. So when I begin to think about these events, I very much think about how these public perceptions of them change based on what's going on in the world. These have always been political events, even for people who are thinking that the participants are thugs or mad dogs, as Ronald Reagan taught them, because entities are responding politically. They're getting programs. They're getting job training. They're getting playgrounds. So there are people who are recognizing that these are political tools and they're responding and such. But what's been so curious in the past six or seven years is how the discourse of these have changed. So if we're looking at Ferguson in 2014, if we're looking at Baltimore in 2015, there is this discourse of this is not the right way to do things. There are better mechanisms. But by the time we get to 2020 and George Floyd, 
not only has that changed and lots of people are seeing what is happening in cities across the nation and the world as being a legitimate response, more people and more diverse people than ever before are participating. And I think it's important to know that the majority of the unrest that we saw this or last summer was not kind of this damaging of property and the destruction. And a lot of times it was just massive civil disobedience of literally tens of thousands of people going out to the, into the streets and saying, we're fed up, we're not gonna take it anymore and we need change. So tell me, why did you get interested in this particular topic 15 years ago? Was there something that happened specifically that caused you to want to research and really figure out, you know, the mechanism behind these type movements? This is one of these kind of wonderful occasions of like kismet, right? Of the world just like looking and shining down upon you. I graduated from college. I was looking at law schools and I decided that that wasn't my life. That wasn't for me. But I didn't know what to do. I was still working my telemarketing job. And I looked at a course catalog for master's programs. I'm looking in poli-sci and I'm looking in history. And one of the courses offering in history was a history of the 1960s. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I like the clothes. I like the music. This might be my jam. And we have to do a research paper for this class. And our instructor gave us a list of various topics. And one of them said riots. And I was talking with my folks and I was like, you know, this riot thing, that sounds interesting. And my parents said, you know, we had riots here. And they're talking about Omaha, Nebraska, where I grew up. And my mind was just blown, right? Because when we think of uprisings, we think about big cities. We think about Detroit or Newark or Watts in Los Angeles. We don't think about small communities in Nebraska. I have never thought about a riot in Nebraska. I can tell you that. <laughs> there we have it. And so I was like, there's something to this. And the more I was digging into it, I found that not only do people not think about these uprisings as happening in the Midwest, the ways in which people are participating in the uprisings aren't the same. If you are a black middle-class man, you're going to be participating differently than a black working class man who's going to be participating differently than a black working class woman who in turn is going to be participating differently than a white working class man. And so there are all of these things going on. And so as I began to unpack them, I saw that they were more in line with kind of the civil rights movement struggles that people had been studying for so long, as opposed to kind of this outlier, this evil um, that disrupted this overwhelmingly triumphant story. So that's how I came to it. And lucky me, because it's been such a an interesting project to unpack with so many new stories and perspectives and ways of looking at being Black in America. So when you started that project, obviously it was based on your personal interests and then the connection you were able to make growing up in the Midwest. So then when you fast forward to 2020 and you, you see the, I don't know, what, what do you call it? We had protests, we had uprisings. We had a lot of different things, and I don't know where they would fit within urban rebellion. So if we were talking about the George Floyd protest, the summer of 2020, and then we talk about January 6th of 2021, where do those two concepts fit in, in what it is that, that you study? <laughs> how, how do all of those fit in there? It's complicated. Would be would be my quick hashtag on it. Um, I've been calling the past year the long 2020. Mm -hmm. Because we see two very distinct trends 
but there's also overlap. So some of the things that I found so interesting about 2020 is this unrest is multiracial, right? There are black people, there are white people. The scale is absolutely giant, unlike anything that has been seen before. Um, we see, you know, every city having major protests, every all 50 states and about 200 different places around the globe. Mm-hmm. And this is very much to defund the police, but also in conversation of what local people need, whether these be parks or whether it be job opportunities. So George Floyd's murder was kind of the spark, but people are organizing on the ground and they're thinking about it in terms of what their local community needs. And so where I think it begins to get interesting when looking at January 6th is the role of social media. And so when we're beginning to look at January 6th, something that is important to distinguish is whereas the unrest and the civil disobedience that was happening in the summer of 2020 was to have a more expansive understanding of democracy and to make America bigger and more inclusive for its citizens. What we see in January 6th is a shrinking of America and whose voice counts and whose politics matter and whose votes matter, right? Mm -hmm. And so we see both sides feeling a sense of grievance, one I would argue is legitimate and the other is constructed using violence and the threat of violence, or in the case of 2020, kind of these mass demonstrations to get something done. And why I like to talk about social media when thinking about these two events is because it allowed people to talk to one another and find their communities. So if we think about the protests that happened after Floyd's murder in Nashville, These were four young women, teenagers, 16, 15 years old, who found each other's social media and said, you know, we're upset. We need to do something about this. We need to organize. And so we see social media as a very powerful tool, which is the same with January 6th, right? They are mobilizing people. They are creating a narrative of what happened. They are coordinating. And so what we see is that social social media is a key component of social movements, be it progressive or regressive in the 21st century. So that last statement, it kind of goes along with, I always say, you know, social media is the greatest thing that ever happened to us, and social media is the worst thing that ever happened to us. <laughs> when you look back to uh, uprisings of the past, protests of the past, have, have you been able to determine for yourself, obviously, the difference is that information is shared so much quickly, uh, bad information, misinformation, and everyone pretty much can share that information. The difference it makes on the action items of the protest, but then also the um, the results of the protest. Is social media the, um, a key determining factor in how that works? Social media is a large factor. One of the most interesting things that came out of my research about the 1960s is that the media was often on the side of the state. Um, and it's actually really curious how this happens. So if there was an uprising happening in a city, that city would be more likely to report on an uprising occurring in a different place than acknowledge that they have their own issues. Um, Oftentimes, local news channels also created moratoriums per the suggestion of the police that they wouldn't report on an uprising or unrest happening in the city until after 24 hours after it had happened, so as not to encourage other people to go out on the street. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so something that social media allow, has allowed people to do is to create their own narratives. 
and and to create their own spaces for this discussion. You know, Black Twitter is a, a wonderful thing. You know, I great jokes, great perspectives, uh, great memes, all of these things, you know, are happening in it, but we also see its ability to create transformative change. Um, so if we think of something like the Gina Six in Louisiana, this took about six months for their those boys' stories to kind of become more widespread. But with social media, people like Trayvon Martin's name can become, you know, within a month, kind of part of the national discourse and someone like Mike Brown or Freddie Gray instantaneously becomes a hashtag. So it allows Black people and people who are our allies and our accomplices to think about these terms and how they are being framed. And so instead of a thug or instead of a threat, we see them who for who they are. So like the hashtag, if they gun me down. This was Black people showing images of how they see themselves in their military uniforms, in their cap and gown at graduation versus how the media would portray them if they were killed. So already we are challenging these narratives of how it happens and how we are seen. And we're also tying them together by hashtag Rakia Boy, by hashtag Tamir Rice. We are saying that these aren't the sins of an individual person, but are collectively showing that the system is broken, or as some would say, the system is working the way it should. And so we see social media allow Black people to control the narrative of our stories as well as organize people, whether it be QRC codes, if you need legal help, whether it be show up at this place for a rally, and most importantly, as we've seen the past few years, as a witnessing tool. You know, if you look at some of the still images from George Floyd's murder, you see there are about nine people witnessing his horrific death and I'd say between four and five of them have their cameras out, right? And so this witnessing tool, this challenging of the narratives, both by the media and by law enforcement of what actually happens is a game changer um, in, in the kind of the black American experience. You know, when you mentioned the phones as a witnessing tool, I, I feel like you know, again, it's this double-edged sword of it's great to it offers some level of accountability that we've seen situations that would never have been shared or told from the viewpoint of the person that cannot speak for themselves. But also you have this horrible phase of people who are witnessing crimes and not doing anything to stop the crime or stop the injustice. And so sometimes you think about, okay, if someone is filming this injustice, is there a responsibility on that person to put the phone down to help? To, to, to jump in, to fight, to push the knee off a neck, to stop a rape, you know? And so it's amazing how now everyone is able to be basically a member of the media, right? With their own phone and they become a journalist in their own right. But how detached do we become from sharing or witnessing from being, you know, a part of the solution or more importantly, being a part of the problem? And that's such an interesting query. And I, and I think it so is dependent on the situation, right? Mm -hmm. I'm confident if any of the people who watched George Floyd's murder, if they intervened, they themselves may have been put in harm's way, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this is how the system works. It intimidates us um, from being citizen journalists. You, you see the man who took the video of Eric Garner's death was harassed mm -hmm. um, by, by police. The same thing as a young woman who took kind of the dominant video uh, of George Floyd. So there are, there are threats with that. 
But for me, oftentimes I think the biggest damage and my fear of kind of this constant inundation of videos of black death is that our lives are cheapened, right? We become, Mm. it becomes normalized to witness our death and we become desensitized to it. And that these videos won't have the impact that we see um, that they're having right now, that black death, right? And, you know, this idea of necropolitics that, well, some die and some live and that black people are always read as the people that die. That for me is one of my greatest fears um, about the kind of preponderance of evidence of these witnessing effects is that black life will be even um, will continue to be devalued in, in our society because our, our death is normatized. Yeah. Right. It has become very normalized. I have never seen the George Floyd video consciously. I was formerly a television news anchor and a lot of what I did have to consume was not by choice and also pushed me to decide to choose another career path. But in that you wouldn't be able to watch a dog be beaten or murdered on film, let alone have it redistributed and shared. And um, is that still going back to obviously the value or the, the lack of perceived value of black lives, even amongst black folks? It's so hard because it has, again, that draw and manifesting what black people have been saying for centuries in this country, that we are hunted, that we are under threat of anti-black violence. And we see historically how these images have such power for change. If we think about these lynching images that were coming out of the nadir, so roughly the 1880s to the 1930s, these images were used to perpetuate white supremacy, to say this is, but the NAACP was using it also as a tool to say this could be any of us, right? A man was lynched today. And in their usage of lynching photographs, They always made sure that you couldn't see the person's face to kind of reiterate that this could be any of us. This could happen to you and to get people involved. We also see this with the civil rights movement, kind of those iconic images of children being sprayed with fire hoses or being attacked um, by German shepherds. These images help turn the tide for the North that they, they said, well, these are just innocent children. These are people not acting violently, but here the South is you know, hunting them down. And so that helps sway public perception in the civil rights movement, but then the segregationists got wise and they stopped doing as overt and public violence to organizers. It didn't mean that the violence stopped, it just was more difficult to document. And so, It's always this tension, but I do think there is a pendulum that swings where there comes a point when these images move far, too far to one side and begin to help to hurt the mental health of black people. Oh, it's a it's a it's a emotional tax and toll uh, in addition to uh, just waking up black, also having to consume images that are very disturbing. But as you mentioned, it's normalized. We become desensitized and um, and we become part of the, the problem. But it, it still comes down to how you consume information. So when you mentioned social media, we were talking about how information can just be spread so quickly now versus in the 60s. 
my perception is that I feel like somehow we were still more organized in the 60s without the tools, because I think of something like the Black Panther Party and the work they were able to do in the community and how that work was able to spread throughout the country and the world. Um, and I don't see us being able to galvanize in that way. I think last summer was unique in that so many people from so many parts of the world came together to protest the murder of George Floyd. But then when we talk about action items and organization, it seems like one person might share, oh, we're not going to shop on this day, or somebody else might say, don't watch the show. It never feels like we're ever really on the same page, even though we have this amazing tool. I think what we're seeing in, in 2021, and which is, in my opinion, very much the legacy of early Black Lives Matter organization, people are organizing locally. They're building bases. They are uh, mobilizing resources at the local condition because that's where they can affect change. The fact that after George Floyd's murder, we see you know police being removed from the University of Minnesota campuses, from Minneapolis public schools. That is change that happens immediately and presently that you can see happen in your communities, whereas kind of these bigger issues, whether it be, you know, federal reform on drug laws, whether it be offering parole to people who have done their time, those big things seem to be a slower change. But what I've been noticing is that people are beginning to understand globally how their fates are, are interlocked. And so, again, when you see people in Japan going out protesting after ethnic minorities have been killed there, if we see protests in France and in Mexico and Jamaica and Brazil, and people are beginning to understand this context in the, the superstructure that it's taking place in, but they care more about organizing on the ground. And I think we so often are taught these big narratives of King and of, you know, Malcolm X and the Sioux Nonviolent Coordinating Committees because they're big meta narratives that kind of capture the era. But in all these places, it's people doing small local organizing that builds the movement and builds the momentum after the local experiences and the local victories that then translate into national movements. So when you are studying urban rebellions from the 60s, and obviously, uh, as we all consumed current um, protests and uprisings, uh, how important is language? And, and what I'm getting to is like, let's say defund the police. That was a debatable phrasing because people who were against were able to say, fine, you want to live with that police. But when that was never the point of the phrasing, how important is it from the 60s to today is the phrasing of the movement? I think phrasing is so important. And this is one of these social movement theories um, that scholars think about when they talk about movement efficacy, whether or not your movement's going to win, is how you phrase it will determine whether or not people want to get on board. I don't think that people who are having a problem with the phrase defund the police actually care about the wording. They're against the idea. Right. You could call it whatever you want. You could call it refund communities. If the intent is to take less money, take money from police and put it into solutions that help the community, they don't want to hear it. But again, I think it's important when we choose our language to understand that those descriptors inform how people will perceive this. So again, 
my desire to call them uprisings or revolts or rebellions as opposed to riots show that there's a political intent behind it, that this is not just violence for fun. It's violence with an intent. And this is evident by the fact that in all of these episodes, people are putting forth grievances about what they want, the change that they want to see, and how they want that change to happen. So when you talked about the study of, of when the media would not show uh, certain images for a certain amount of time so as to not encourage people, you know, it's the same reason why they won't show a streaker in a sporting event now because they don't want people to say, oh, I'm going to get on TV for that. How much now in modern day media do you feel they have played a role in the proper telling or the mistelling of what's been going on in current times? One thing that I think has very much changed between the 1960s and the 2020 uprisings um, is journalists flip sides in that how they are perceived. So there are all these really horrible incidences of journalists being attacked um, by police, journalists being targeted with pepper spray and other crowd control um, techniques and journalists actually getting arrested. In fact, a, a local journalist here in Iowa at the Des Moines Register was arrested and brought to trial because they thought she was trying to incite something and was in interfering with police business. And so we see this shift, but I still don't think enough has been done uh, to really capture the perspective of Black people and the fact that our stories, by and large, are only coming into the mainstream media narratives when they align with these kind of dominant stories that we tell about America is also a problem. What would it look like if we are focusing on Black life in the quiet moments, when it's not explosive, when it's not sensational. That is what I would actually like to see um, mainstream media do, not just you know, for our community, but for all, all communities that are often invisibilized and, and rendered not a part of this country. That if we share their, their stories in the quiet times, it adds to our humanity. It adds to our sense of worthiness in this nation and not just a spectacle of death or crime or what have you. I agree wholeheartedly that it's not a reaction. It's our everyday life. And as you mentioned, the quiet moments. But when you have communities that are marginalized or disenfranchised communities, there's also the conversation of, you know, I know with Black women supporting women's rights, but not feeling like women's rights support Black people. And then you start having all these subsections of disenfranchised people that come together sometimes, but not other times. Do you have an opinion on how that is um, often presented or even how it even plays itself out? I, I think right now, I think of, obviously right now everyone's talking about Dave Chappelle, but um, Dave Chappelle offends a lot of different people, <laughs> but then, but then a certain community gets to, you know, makes it, he, he offended my community. And mm -hmm. so then where is the outrage of all the other communities that he offended? But then that's what we see in protest as well. And, you know, I, I always think the least of us, right? If the least of us is free, if the least of us feel safe, then we can all feel safe. So what does it take for trans people of color who are non-citizens and working class or unhoused, what does it make for them to feel safe? And if those people have the protections to guarantee their whole life, right, their safety and their comfort and their joy, then the rest of us, wherever we may fall in those categories, will also feel free. 
And I think this is one of the things that was so interesting about the 1960s and 1970s that I think is so important that we keep in our minds as we organize. We need broad-based coalitions. We cannot just organize with Black people about Black interests because Black interests also have tendrils into the interests of other groups. So if we think about the question or the issue of disproportionate policing in Black communities, this is also something that undocumented Americans are facing, right? If we think about trans issues, right? We know that trans people disproportionately come into contact with the law, are disproportionately subjected to violence. And so what does it mean to understand the commonalities between those three different groups and understanding to organize against them? I think it's also when we begin to look at these intersections, right? Not just race, but also class and gender, we again get at this idea of a complete freedom. If a woman is being abused but is afraid to call somebody, call the police because she doesn't want to get her partner in trouble or she doesn't want to be sent to ICE, what are the kind of community support mechanisms that we can offer her that don't include a police intervention? How can we begin to think holistically about these issues as opposed to automatically picking up the phone and calling law enforcement? That's this reinvestment in community that I think so many people are looking to see solutions with. I think that makes so much sense. You use the example of a woman who may be abused, but my mom had a man drive his truck through her, her fence at two in the morning and she didn't call the police. And so when I came the next day and I was like, why wouldn't you call the police? Her mind is, I'm not trying to get anybody killed. We can fix the fence, <laughs> you know? And so, yes, it's this idea of, I don't know who to call. This is who it's set up to call, but I don't want to cause more problems than we need. And, and, uh, and it becomes this vicious cycle. It, it does. And for me, it's about interrupting that cycle before it even begins. How do we make it so that a partner never abuses their intimate other? Right. How, how do we intervene? Not in thinking about what happens afterwards, but how do we intervene to make sure that never occurs in the first place? Is it job training? Is it anger management? Is it substance abuse counseling? What does it look like to intervene in violence before that violence ever occurs? And that is really what my, what my work is animated by. I don't want rebellions, but I understand that rebellions are a response to violence that has happened for decades before. And not just the physical violence of, you know, police brutality or a murder, but the structural violence of living in underserved communities, cultural violence that blames us for our own poverty. All of those violences occur before that moment where a rock goes through a window. Wow, you said that so beautifully. And that leads me to how we like to end every episode with our wonderful guest. We like for our listeners to feel galvanized and activated after these conversations. So you kind of were talking about being on the front end versus the reactionary end. So we encourage and challenge our listeners to hashtag be the change. So if you could offer us uh, an idea of what we can do today, right now, to be part of the change, to be on the front end and not on the rebellion end, what could you offer us? I say, look for justice. Look for justice and fight for justice. If we want to end violence, fight for justice in your local communities. I love that. And that will show up in so many different ways. We always stress, obviously, voting, but voting in local elections, 
holding local uh, uh, politicians accountable, whether it's the school board, whether it's the city council, all of that matters. And it's not just about a big general election when it gets to be cool to get a sticker. Uh, Dr. Howard, I so appreciate this conversation. I love the way your phrasing of things that we may have thought about before, but you you have a way of putting things that it really, it sounds different and I don't know, it, it touches me in a different way. So I really appreciate that uh, and, and love the work that you've been doing. I look forward to seeing more of it. And I always say this at the end because we're still recording. Please become a friend of the history of being black. We would love to reach out to you, whatever you're working on. We would love to have you come back so we can support it and you can continue to educate us as you have done today. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all for listening. You have your hashtag be the change for this episode. And until next time, take care of yourselves. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Ariel Mancibo. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcast, And on IG and Twitter at History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.